Heavenly Father, we do thank you for all of your word, uh, for the parts that are clear and also for the parts that are less clear uh, where we need to dig a little deeper uh, to understand what it is that you would have us hear. Lord, we pray that you would be with me this morning. We pray that you would strengthen me to be able to declare fearlessly about your son Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit may be amongst us this morning as we draw near to you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be honoured as our hearts are inclined all the more towards the Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, have you ever needed someone to step up and deal with a problem that might be happening in your close vicinity? Have you been the person who was ready to step up and deal with a serious problem that was going on? I was thinking this week about an occasion where I almost stepped up and helped in a particular problem that was going on. I remember uh, going to donate blood at the blood bank in the city and, of course, being at Town Hall. Uh, it's an interesting place, Town Hall, generally speaking. And I was sitting there waiting for the nurse to come out and grab me to go in and donate blood. And this gentleman came in, that would be one way to describe him, and started uh, to cause a bit of a scene at the front desk there. And it was all these uh, older women who were there and they were trying to deal with him and he was talking very loudly about um, HIV, blood and AIDS and all kinds of things and uh, obviously uh, under the influence of things as well. And I was the only male that was around and so I started to brace myself to, if they, he started to cause a real scene. At first he was, he was just speaking, but if he started to move in a violent direction towards these women, I was getting ready to actually uh, help out. But at that moment, just as I thought I might need to offer my services, whatever they may be, um, I'm not one for physical strength to begin with, uh, he started to leave and then my name was called to go in and donate blood. But there was a particular problem that morning with donating blood from then on is because my blood pressure just wouldn't go back down. Uh, so they called me right in and she said, your blood pressure is really high and my blood pressure never has a problem at all. I'm always just uh, very cool, calm, collected and no problems at all. And she said, uh, because she actually, the nurse had come out and seen uh, this gentleman leaving and knew something of the situation. She said, yes, that's the problem, is that you are ready uh, to engage, to step up in something and so we waited a little bit more, five minutes, and my blood pressure started to come down and I was eligible then to donate blood. But have you ever had a situation where something really serious is going on and somebody is needed to step up and deal with the situation? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we look at this obscure passage in Numbers chapter 25. Uh, being the first Sunday of the month, we have communion and we've been going through the Old Testament and looking at passages that point particularly to Jesus Christ. And as I was preparing this week for the communion service, I saw that Numbers 25 was next uh, on the list uh, for a passage that does point to Jesus Christ as we look at a situation that happened with the Israelites uh, many years uh, before Jesus Christ came on the scene. Uh, the situation with the Israelites here uh, arises because uh, basically the Israelites have left Egypt and they're now moving towards the promised land. So they'd been in Egypt under the slavery of Pharaoh and then under the leadership of Moses, they're brought out of Egypt to the promised land. They wander 40 years in the desert and now where we pick up in Numbers chapter 25, 
the Israelites are just about to enter into the promised land. They've spent 40 years wandering around and now they're about to come into that land that was promised to them way back uh, when they were in slavery in Egypt. And so we see this situation uh, comes up in chapter 25, verses 1 and following, where the Israelites now fall into grievous sin. The Israelites fall into sin. And so that's my first main point this morning, the sin of the Israelites. If you want to follow my main points this morning, they're listed there on the back of the church bulletin. And the first is the sin of the Israelites. What is the sin of the Israelites? Well, we read it in chapter 25, verse 1 and following, that they start to engage in sexual immorality. Look with me on page 157, 157 of the Black Church Bibles. We read from verse 1. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women. They start to engage in sexual immorality here with people of a different nation. And that's not so bad in itself. We've got to remember Moses' wife. Uh, was not an and was not a descendant of the Jews, so it's not like there's a problem with uh, marrying people of another nation. No, the problem is what happens then in verse two. Verse two, we read, "Who that's the women of the Moabite nation who invited them to the sacrifices to the sacrifices to their gods." These women attract Israelite men. For sex, and then they also mislead them to worship their gods. And the Israelites fall prey to that. We read in verse 2 the people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshipping the Baal of Peor. What's the sin of the Israelites? Well, it's sexual immorality, but ultimately, it's false worship. And this is a common thing with these pagan uh, gods is that uh, you would actually have sex with the, uh, the, the priestesses of these false gods as an act of worship. So sex was often uh, seen to be a part of worship of these false gods. And that is really wrong in the eyes of God. The Israelites have received the Ten Commandments and the first commandment is... You shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment is, don't bow down to idols. What are the Israelites doing here? They're breaking the first two commandments. And then, of course, the seventh commandment about adultery, that is being practiced here as well. And this sin is quite grievous in the eyes of God. Why? Well, because of the behavior of certain individuals in this time as well we see that one Israelite man and one Midianite woman behave in an appalling manner. Uh, it seems that everything else was happening outside the camp, this sexual morality, this worship of false gods. But then in verse 6, we see an audacious act by this gentleman, or should I say gentleman, an Israelite man. It says in verse 6, Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses, and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the tent entrance of the tent of meeting. See four factors that make this sin so bad. Why is it so bad? It's in front of the eyes of Moses, 
that he is doing this. It's front in front of the eyes of the whole assembly. And it's also while they are weeping about this fact of what they're doing. And fourthly, it's while they're at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting is God's place within the camp. They're all there before God, upset about what is going on. And this gentleman, gentleman, I should say man, walks past, he's no gentleman, walks past while they're all upset about what's going on brings this woman into his tent and basically flaunts his sin before the whole community. What is he doing? He's saying, I don't care about Moses. I don't care about the Israelite leaders here. And I don't care what God thinks of what I'm doing. I'm just going to walk past everyone. And he's really um, maybe even signing his own death warrant here. He doesn't care. Because we see, as I'll unpack in a few minutes, that people who were engaging in this were to be put to death. And uh, it, it was quite possible that this would happen to him. But he's saying, I don't care. And this Midianite woman obviously doesn't care either about what's going on. She's walking past all these crying people. She doesn't care what they're thinking. She's quite happy to go with this man and engage in sexual immorality. And we actually get a a little bit of a clue in verses 14 and 15 as to how audacious this is as well, considering who these two individuals are. Verse 14 and 15 tell us about this man and this woman. They're both children of leaders in their respective communities. Look with me at verse 14. It says, The name of the Israelite who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, the leader of a Simeonite family. And the name of the Midianite woman who was put to death was Cosby, daughter of Zer, a tribal chief of a Midianite family. So Salu is the leader of a Simeonite family, and his son Zimri is the guy who engages in the act. And uh, the woman, uh, her father is Zer, who is the chief of a Midianite family, and her name is Cosby. You can see that these two should know better. And they're running the risk of bringing down their family heads by their act as well. But in one sense, this doesn't surprise us. Basically, these two are behaving like a prince and a princess who think they are above the law and nobody can touch them no matter what they do. And so this terrible sin is happening here within the Israelite camp. And the whole sin of them bowing down to false gods, engaging in sexual immorality, the actions of Zimri and Cosby, it's all the more awful when we consider what position the Israelites are in at this stage of their history. They're about to enter into the promised land. They're about to receive their inheritance. And here they are, as they're about to receive the blessing of God, they're going against God. And what is happening in the chapters immediately prior to chapter 25? We haven't looked at them because we're just jumping to those sections that I think are really relevant to us as we can gather to remember our Lord's death. What is happening? Well, Balaam, a prophet of a, a, a false, a prophet of another nation, is up a mountain blessing the Israelites. God is making a prophet bless the Israelites from a mountain. And meanwhile, they're at the bottom of the mountain engaging in this despicable sin. God is blessing them using a prophet of another nation to bless them. And if you want to read the chapters prior, 
I'd encourage you to do that this afternoon. Look at how Balaam, the prophet, was led into that position. He didn't want to do it. And the person paying him did not want him to bless the Israelites. But God supersedes the desires of those men and blesses the Israelites. Meanwhile, they're at the bottom of the mountain engaging in this depravity. What does that remind you of? Mount Sinai. What happened on Mount Sinai? Moses was up a mountain, a prophet up a mountain, getting blessing for the people. And what were the people doing at the bottom of the mountain? They were engaging in pagan revelry. They had made false gods and were bowing down to them and probably committing sexual acts as well at that time. They were engaged in sexual immorality. And Moses comes down the mountain and ends up breaking the tablets that God has given him in anger about what the Israelites are doing while he was up the mountain blessing God's people. They're down the bottom of the mountain cursing God. So what has happened? When the Israelites came out of Egypt, they get to Mount Sinai, they commit this despicable sin of engaging in pagan revelry, worshipping false gods while Moses is up a mountain. They've now gone 40 years in the desert. They're about to enter the promised land. Have they changed? No. A prophet is up a mountain blessing them. They're at the bottom of the mountain doing what? Worshipping false gods. This sin is awful sin that is going on in Numbers 25. And it's not surprising, as we'll see later, that the Apostle Paul picks up on it in 1 Corinthians 10 and says this is a reminder. This incident, this Numbers 25 situation, is a point of application for us today as Christians. So what does God do in this situation? How does God react? He's blessing them from up the top of the mountain. They engage in sexual sin and false worship. What does God do as a result? Well, God brings his judgment on them for their sin. And that's my second main point this morning, the judgment of God for sin, the judgment of God for sin. And we see the judgment of God brought out in this passage in a number of different places. Uh, firstly, you can see his, his judgment is brought out in the way that his anger burns against them in verse 3. It says in verse 3, So Israel joined in worshipping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. So his judgment is shown by the way that he gets angry about what's happening. He doesn't say, oh, it's not a big deal at all. They can do what they like down there. No, his anger burns. How else is his judgment shown? Well, by what he says needs to happen. In verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. He's meant to take the leaders of the people, probably the people, the leaders who had engaged, who had led people to engage in false worship, because we see that in verse 5, Moses uh, says to the Israel's judges that each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshipping the Baal of Peor. So these people are to be killed. The people who have engaged in worshipping the Baal of Peor are to be judged and put to death. They're to be taken and to be killed. And then there's a way that they're supposed to be killed that's given to us in verse 4. It says, uh, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. That word expose, um, that's an English word that's used to translate a Hebrew word that is a bit tricky uh, to translate 
Uh, the KJV and the ESV have it as hang them. Uh, so it seems to be the idea of hanging someone up. And the way that it says that it's in broad daylight gives the idea of hanging because, remember, uh, the law is very specific about when you hang someone up on a tree, uh, you're not to leave them up overnight. And so the idea is that they're up there during the day but they won't be hung up overnight because whoever is left on a tree overnight is under God's curse. And so these people are to be hung up. Now, what would that have looked like? Well, according to the customs of the day, it would have been an impalement. It would have been where someone was impaled. And that is what is to happen to these people. They are to be given a painful, shameful death before the Lord in broad daylight to demonstrate to people that this is not on. You cannot engage in sexual immorality and the worship of false gods. It is just not on. It's a way of doing church discipline in a way that everybody then realises the consequences of their actions. So we see the judgment of God is shown by his anger burning. We see it by the way that he says these people have to be killed and in a particularly brutal way. How else is the judgment of God for sin shown in this passage? Well, it's shown by the way that this couple is put to death, this particularly audacious couple here in verses 6 and following. We see this death of this couple is done by a man called Phineas. We read in verse 6, Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite, and into the woman's body. What is God's attitude towards sin? Well, it's one of great judgment. This man is supposed to be impaled, Exposed in broad daylight for his sin, he is indeed impaled. It's not in broad daylight, but it's still a public execution that takes place here. And it's in a particularly gruesome way. The woman is also killed, and from the text it, it appears that it happens while they're having intercourse. The Bible doesn't explicitly say that, but you can the way that it's described where it goes through both of them, one spear, it seems to imply that's what happens. They go into the tent. Everybody knows what's going on in the tent. Phineas picks up a spear and goes in and puts to death this man in, and this woman in a very gruesome way. An impalement takes place, but not in the way that was initially said by God should happen. But, of course, God, we see, approves of this death. Uh, the Bible here presents a very gruesome image for us. And people say the Bible is boring and not worth reading. Uh, this passage is one of the passages in the Bible that is very interesting for us to read. Uh, it really grabs our attention on how God views sin. How else do we see that God judges sin? Well, it's not just by the fact that these people were to be put to death. We see that God was putting people to death himself. What else was happening? Well, we read in the, the rest of verse 8, Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, and those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. God was not just going to make sure that people were killed by being exposed in broad daylight or speared as Phineas did, 
but he was also bringing his judgment on the people by a plague. Thousands of people were dying because of this plague. And we see that God was even considering killing all the Israelites as a result of the sin that was going on in the camp. How do we see this? Well, it's shown to us in verse 11. When the Lord speaks to Moses, in verse 10 it says, and, and in verse 10 it says, The Lord said to Moses, then verse 11, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am for my honour among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. God was getting quite zealous there. And he was considering putting an end to the whole of the Israelite community. And we see that happens back at Sinai as well. When Moses is up there and the people are engaging in pagan revelry at the bottom of the mountain, he's considering wiping the whole lot of them out. And Moses makes a quick intercession to say, please don't do that. And here we see another intercessor, Phineas, coming and making sure that God in his zealousness doesn't wipe out the entire Israelite community, that he doesn't continue that plague so that not 24,000 are put to death, but over 2 million are put to death there in the desert. So God's judgment for sin is clearly shown in this passage. But is there any hope for the Israelites? Well, that brings me to my third main point. The judgment of God is satisfied by death. The judgment of God is satisfied by death. We see that the actions of Phineas, the priest in killing that Israelite, turns away God's wrath. Look with me at verse 11. It says, Phinehas, this is the Lord speaking, Phinehas, has, has, uh, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am for my honour among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. We see that God's anger is turned back as this death of the Israelite and the Midianite woman takes place, God's anger is turned back. Phineas, by being willing to step up and deal with the difficult problem, has solved the problem that the wrath of God is appeased, which is far greater action than me being ready to step up at the blood bank. Um, I wasn't ready to start taking spears to people, uh, and I didn't actually have to do anything. But Phineas has shown here that he has actually dealt with the wrath of God by God's statement to uh, Moses in verse 11. And so then we see that the plague actually stops as well. Uh, verse 8, if you go back with me, after it says, uh, he drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's body, it then says, then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. God's anger was appeased and the plague was stopped by the death of this Israelite for his sin. And then we see this wonderful covenant is made with Phineas. In verse 12, it says, Therefore tell him, so this is Moses, uh, God tells Moses to tell Phineas, I am making my covenant of peace with him, with Phineas. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. A covenant of peace is made with, Israel, uh, with this Israelite, with Phineas, to demonstrate that the judgment of God has been dealt with. And a very interesting word is introduced in verse 13 where it says that he made atonement, that God's wrath was turned back as death was brought about to this Israelite. 
Now, what's the application for you today? We've seen that Israelites engaged in this sin. We've seen that they were judged for that sin. And we've seen that atonement was made for that sin, that the wrath of God was turned away by the actions of Phineas. Does this text have any relevance for us today? Well, as I said before, the Apostle Paul thinks so. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Turn with me there now, page 1134. Page 1134. This is the passage that we heard read earlier. But I'll read from verse 6. I won't read from the beginning of the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. The Apostle Paul has spoken about what is happening with Moses in the desert. And then he says in verse 6, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to engage, engage in pagan, to indulge in pagan revelry, which is a reference to what was happening at Mount Sinai. The Apostle Paul in verse 7 mentions Mount Sinai. Remember what they did? While Moses was up the mountain, they engaged in pagan revelry. But verse 8, he also says, We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died, which is now a reference to that passage that we've been looking at before, Numbers 25. And then he goes on to speak about other instances. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angels. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. Saying, these things aren't obscure things that we don't need to worry about. No, they were actually written down as examples for us today. So if you, verse 12, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. The Apostle Paul thinks that this has great relevance for us today. And in one sense, this is a warning for us as people of God to avoid something like sexual immorality, which can lead us to worship of false gods. But there's another way that this passage could be applied to us as well as a warning for us today. I mean, we just consider that we are on the verge of entering the promised land. The Israelites were just about to enter into the promised land. They'd been 40 years in the desert. And all of us are on the verge of entering the promised land. It won't be long before we pass away and we'll enter into a promised land. God has promised that he gives this marvellous inheritance, that there is a heaven and that heaven's doors are open. But like the Israelites, we have also fallen into false worship. All of us have. Now, it may not be that sexual sin has led us to false worship, as the Israelites did here. But at the bottom of all our sin is a false worship. We are either serving God or we are serving some other God, whether it be us or somebody else or something else. We are in service to something, God or something else. And the sad fact is, is that we've all been false worshippers. 
from the cradle, we are false worshippers. We engage in sin again and again. And God does not take sin lightly. We see in Numbers 25, he does not take sin lightly. There is judgment for sin. We all deserve a shameful, painful death for our sin. And the Bible speaks about a second death that goes on for eternity, the torments of hell. And why is that? Well, God's honour is at stake. He created you to worship him. And instead, you've worshipped other things. He has blessed you immensely. But in the face of such blessing, you have shaken your fist at God, as the Israelites did. They were receiving blessing from the mountain, but were engaging in false worship. And that is the case for all of us. God has blessed us immensely. And we continue to shake the fist at him every time we sin. So we are like the Israelites. We deserve death for our sin which sounds like a terrible application for us to make this morning, that we deserve a shameful, painful death for dishonouring the God who made us. But there is good news. Thankfully, a priest like Phineas has stepped up to deal with sin. A priest who was as zealous as the Lord is for his honour amongst God's people. A priest whose zealousness has not stopped Uh, who has stopped God from putting an end to his people as Phinehas was able to do in the Old Testament. And unlike Phinehas, this priest, instead of putting to death the sinners, he put himself to death. Phinehas in the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 25, he takes a spear and he makes atonement by plunging it into the body, the bodies of those who are sinning. But the priest of the New Testament, who has dealt with sin, dealt with the judgment of God, has plunged a spear into himself. He died himself so that the wrath of God would be taken away. Now, how is this good news for you? Sounds like it's good for the priest if he's able to stop the wrath of God. Well, you can actually join in with this priest because God has made a covenant of peace with this priest. And that's wonderful for him and it's also wonderful for those who join in with him. If you trust in the priest of the New Testament who has dealt with sin, then you actually become a part of him. And the covenant of peace that God has made with him also becomes a covenant of peace that is made with you. That no longer is God angry at you, but he is pleased with you through that covenant, that promise that has been made. And you can join in with him by simply trusting in him. By faith alone, we can be saved by the actions of this priest. Now, who is this priest of the New Testament who killed himself to deal with sin? Well, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who has said of him that zeal for God's house would consume him, and it did. He was so zealous for God's house, so zealous for God's people, that it consumed him. He died in our place. Jesus experienced what was said to happen 
to these Israelites back in Numbers 25. What was to happen to those sinners? Numbers 25. Turn back with me there now. Numbers 25, page 157. Page 157. Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. What did Jesus do? He was taken. He was killed. He was exposed in broad daylight. He was impaled in broad daylight on a tree before the Lord. The Lord saw what he was doing in broad daylight, being there on the cross. And a spear, was a spear thrust into Jesus? Yes. After he had died, a spear was plunged into his body. Not in the same way that Phineas plunged the spear into that man's body, to Zimri's body. But a spear was plunged into Jesus nonetheless. And so we see that Phineas is a type of Christ. He's pointing forward to Christ. Christ is the one who has been impaled so that you do not have to be. And a covenant of peace has been made with Jesus. He has indeed appeased the wrath of God. What is said to Phineas in verse 11 could easily be said of Jesus. Look with me at verse 11 now, and I'm going to change it slightly. Verse 11. Jesus, the son of David, the son of God, The priest has turned my anger away from the people of God, from the church of God. For he was as zealous as I am for my honour among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Therefore tell Jesus, I am making my covenant of peace with him. Easily applied to Jesus Christ a zealous man, so that God would not put an end to the human race for their sin. Instead, Jesus saves his own by his death. Atonement is made. And you can be saved from the judgment that you deserve. You deserve a worse judgment than what happens here in Numbers 25. But the wonderful thing is is that if you trust that Jesus Christ died for you, then God is no longer angry with you because you are in Jesus. And the covenant that has been made with Jesus is made with you too. A covenant of peace that is everlasting. What does it say in verse 13? He and his descendants. This is uh, Phineas, but we can apply it to Jesus as well. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was a zealous for the honour of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you become part of a covenant of peace that goes on for all of eternity. God promises to bless you. Despite your sinfulness, you are blessed. And this is the wonderful message that we remember again and again here at Cremoyne Baptist because this is why we continue to worship our God is because he has provided a priest who has appeased God, appeased the wrath of God, so that we could go free. And it's all by faith in him. God is a marvellous God, and we should listen to what his word has to say about him and about our sin. We should listen to the Apostle Paul and see that this is written down as an example for us to follow. 
that we should admit our sin against God, our sexual sin, our anger, our greed, our jealousy, our false worship, our pride, and turn from that sin and trust that Jesus Christ died in our place. Let's come before our God now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Numbers 25, this part of your word which portrays part of sin in all its ugliness. Lord, we recognize that at the root of all our sin is false worship. And this is grievous when you have been so good to us. You have blessed us immensely. And yet we would shake our fist at you. But Lord, we thank you that someone has stepped up. Someone has taken the spear and plunged it into their side, has been impaled so that your wrath is appeased. We thank you that that person is Jesus Christ and you have made a covenant of peace with him and that we can join in in that covenant if we simply trust in him. So, Lord, we pray that all of us this morning may place our trust in Jesus Christ. If we haven't before, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would grant faith to those who are amongst us this morning. And may they trust in Jesus Christ and the empowerment that he, he experienced for us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would set them free and they would look forward to life everlasting. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.